full slate of campaign promises at her back and hundreds of employees at her direction, the new attorney general has a lot on her plate. A former city councillor and Boston mayoral hopeful, whose post-grad legal background focused on education and employment, Andrea Campbell is about five months into the attorney general job. She replaced now Governor Maura Healey, who backed her for the post. Campbell ran on an equity platform that extended from her eight years on the council, having unseated 16-year incumbent councillor Charles Yancey when she was 32 years old. She's pledged to work to restore faith in the criminal justice system and put state muscle into protecting vulnerable populations and their interests. How does that square with the basic functions of the role? Well, the AG's brief is pretty broad. Campbell and her predecessors are the state's top prosecutors, yes, but they also use the AG's civil arm to target consumer protection, housing and energy policy, labor violations, even reproductive care access. Campbell's waded into some politically thorny topics so far, trying to balance an advocacy lens with the practical demands of the job, claiming the title of the people's lawyer, as others before her have done, while also needing to represent the state and its employees. I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined this week on the podcast by Attorney General Andrea Campbell. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you're a few months into the AG job and you're coming from most recently a legislative background on the council and running to be mayor of Boston. So what has the transition been like? What surprised you and what did you expect about coming into kind of the top prosecutor's role? First of all, I love the job. I'm frequently remarking that I have the best job when it comes to elected office, um, not just in Massachusetts, I think in the country. And an opportunity, frankly, to continue some of that legislative advocacy and policy work I did on the city council. I was just at the state house testifying in support of some legislation around pay equity and uh, protecting tenants. And then, of course, um, continuing to do public safety work, which I did as the chair of the Committee on Public Safety and Criminal Justice for the council. So some of it is a continuation of the work and some of it is broader in scope, obviously representing the entire Commonwealth. It is an honor and privilege to serve in this role. It's historic, as you know, and I don't take that lightly, um, but I love it. And I have the best team um, the best team ever. So it's an honor and privilege. You could arguably wade into almost anything in state government in this role. And the AG's office historically can get into energy policy, consumer protection, criminal justice, health access, even housing policy. So how have you landed on certain priority areas so far? I frequently tell the team that what we do must be in response to what we hear from the people. We are the people's law firm representing uh, the people and their interest, and of course that of the consumer, and also the business community, small businesses as well, or larger businesses. But we represent uh, the people's law firm, and what that means for me is making sure that everything we do is in response to what we hear on the ground, a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach. And so that means, of course, creating level playing fields for businesses and workers alike, advocating for affordable housing and opportunities for folks to move up the economic ladder, doing everything to protect our, our residents and to keep them healthy in neighborhoods and free of pollution and violence, and also protecting our kids, our family members from addiction and deception and scams. So the consumer protection lens is a big piece of the work we do every single day. So the list is long, but the work uh, really should be intersectional because we know residents are grappling with a whole host of things all at once. 
And so how have the tactics sort of changed to approaching those priority areas? If you wanted to take um, the example of, uh, you know, pay equity, for instance, how would you approach that as a lawmaker and how would you approach that as a G? I think there's a combination. I view my role as not only uh, the uh, a prosecutor, obviously we have that role. We are prosecuting crimes and keeping guns off the street and protecting folks from human trafficking, sexual assault, child abuse. The list is long in terms of what the Crim Bureau and other uh, parts of the office are doing in that regard. But I also want folks to think about the office as more than, and I'll put this in quotes, top cop, as many folks still refer to me in the office. It's also a policy shop. And so we are making sure that we're doing everything in our power to address issues of affordability, which is the number one concern we hear the most from residents in the Commonwealth, and using the tools of the office to create economic opportunity and stability for residents. So that means weighing in um, not only on the prosecutorial side on wage theft and making sure our workers are getting paid, but showing up at the state house to change legislation and to put forth legislative solutions to create more transparency, for example, around how women are paid a very different rate than men um, and how that's worse for black women and Latino, Latina women as well. And that also means making sure in addition to wage theft and the legislative pieces, addressing housing and other issues as well. So it's a multi-pronged approach to the work using all of my roles to advocate for a whole host of things at once. And we can do that given the breadth and scope of the authority we have and the team that we have in the office as well. So throughout your career so far as an elected official, you built a reputation pushing for changes uh, specifically, though not you know exclusively in law enforcement policy. So what reforms and what lawsuits are you kind of juggling and advocating for right now in that arena? When it comes to criminal legal reform and a lot in many ways. Um, we've done a few things to start and we are actively developing our strategic plan for the office and more to come on that as we have external conversations to inform it internal as well. But what rises to the top are things I promised on the campaign trail, establishing a gun violence prevention unit and a separate police accountability unit, but they will work hand in hand because it really is about trust between law enforcement and community. Uh, just this morning, I was in Sutton uh, talking to police chiefs at the uh, Police Chiefs Association meeting and making sure that everything we do is in partnership with law enforcement, but as well as the community and community-based organizations. So as we set up those units and those job postings are posted right now, these are new units for the office, one designed to deal with ghost guns and just the trafficking of guns, the prevalence of guns we're seeing in our communities is significant all across the state, but that same unit can also be putting forth solutions in supporting community-based organizations to break cycles of violence. Police accountability, we have the authority from the recent police reform laws to take on patterns and practice, pattern and practice investigations, but we need folks and someone to drive that work, so that's uh, this unit will do just that, but we want to make sure that the person who serves in this role has deep relationships across a whole host of stakeholders. And then the last piece is working on a, in, an internal working group around government accountability and making sure every division, every bureau is addressing criminal legal reform, how we address misappropriation of funds, public corruption, abuse of power, so we've just started that internal working group, which when we have a deeper 
assessment of what we're going to do there, and it's going to be significant. Uh, folks will appreciate the thoughtfulness and the intersectionality. So more to come on that. And exactly on that note, you mentioned, of course, kind of abuses and corruption. What's your office's role in interaction with uh, other existing modes of state police oversight, for instance? It's significant in many ways. Uh, one, I, I'm blessed to work in an office where I have a state police unit in the office. Uh, part of their work is detail and protection, but everyone carries a caseload. So they are actively working to take fentanyl, for example, off the street. Uh, the opioid crisis has not slowed down uh, to take guns off the street. Um, and they offer expertise when it comes to ghost guns, human trafficking, all types of cases um, and, and not just in the criminal context, in other contexts too, to protect consumers, they are doing a lot um, and oftentimes under-resourced. So that unit is unique because it's in the office doing the work. And so we have that expertise right there. Um, we have those relationships there. So we are working with state police all the time, including our new interim colonel uh, as well. And at the same time, where there is any abuse of power, or any broke, um, breakdown in trust between law enforcement and the community, misappropriation of funds, which of course happens only at the state police level, uh, but also at the municipal level, there's a role that POST plays and we are working with the POST Commission, particularly in addressing individual officers. And there's a role for us to play there. And I wanna make sure the office has the resources to really support POST. But then there is the importance of establishing this police accountability unit which will be housed in my office. And the goal of that is the systemic issues, the statewide issues, which is different from what POST does, but I think something the AG's office must be involved in because we are at the statewide level. So it's working in partnership, but where we all agree, no one wants any type of abuse of power or corruption. We're gonna have to work together to solve those issues too. And I think the last thing on law enforcement that I wanted to touch on is there's an interesting interaction here um, with kind of your background and pushing for reform and your role as AG. Uh, for instance, opposition to qualified immunity, which is often the go-to defense if law enforcement is brought up on, say, a civil rights charge. So how is your office incorporating that stance when part of the job is, of course, representing state employees, including law enforcement? Mm-hmm. It's a great question because I, I have to often remark to folks that it's easy to take a policy position, but you have to be thoughtful when taking it because there are many stakeholders involved in any major policy decision or stance you make or take. In the past, I have engaged law enforcement, obviously did it within the city of Boston uh, to pass body cameras, to set up uh, the Office of Police Accountability and Transparency there and other reforms that took place including with the fire department, the cadet program to create diversity. All of that was done working in partnership with community, community-based organizations, colleagues, as well as law enforcement, as well as those who work as first responders. That has not changed. If anything, the scale and scope of the work has expanded dramatically and it's now national in scope too. So I'm working with a whole host of stakeholders to say, if we care about not only the breakdown in trust between community and police, but instances in, in incidents where folks have abused their power, we must do something about it. And the only way to be successful in changing culture and policy and practice is not only work with community and those who have been harmed, but also with law enforcement. 
not this us versus them. And I've never had the us versus them. We're all in this together. And so as we look to protect people, we also want to make sure we hold folks accountable when something goes wrong. So my position on qualified immunity in the context of public safety is just that. If someone has abused their power, maybe resulting in death or some other significant harm to someone, a community or family, they should be held accountable like anybody else. No one is above the law. And I'm able to explain that in a thoughtful way to anyone who's in law enforcement. And I like to think that they agree and want to weed out those folks who are not doing right um, by their standards of professionalism. So more work to do there. And that's why I'm really excited about the various specialized units we will set up in the office. All right. Well, let's move to energy policy. Uh, you have pushed for changes to the energy regulatory process that would broaden public participation. So why is it so onerous right now? And what do you actually want to see change? Yeah, and I, would, I, don't, I wouldn't say me. What I would say is us. I have to give credit to these incredible community-based organizations. Uh, I was on the radio recently and, and named them, you know, the National Consumer Law Center, Green Roots, Alternatives for Community and Environment, uh, the Conservation Law Foundation, the Environmental Defense Fund, Vote Solar, making sure I don't forget any Massachusetts Climate Action Network, and the Regulatory Assistance Project. These folks worked together for over two years as a part of a stakeholder working group to develop this report that said, and that we all agree with, and I do too, that the communities that bear the brunt of environmental injustice must be at the table, must be a part of the decision-making, must have access to the information they need to make an informed decision about what will take place in their very community. And so they put forth just basic ideas that the DPU and, and the EFSB, obviously the Energy Facility Siding, Facility Siding Board, uh, should adopt. You know, when you release a report, everyone should be able to read it. Do it in plain language. Include this information on your website. Make sure the website is user-friendly and that there are educational resources on there so people can learn about not only the proceedings and how to participate, but when a decision's made, what informs it. Um, and they also put forth ideas on how to hire specific um, people and create specific roles to increase and expand public participation, transparency, and accountability. It's a thoughtful report. It makes sense. And I'm going to do everything in our power to use the leverage of the office to push for these recommendations to actually be adopted. And one of the other roles of the AG, of course, is to kind of act on behalf of the ratepayer. Um, when Governor Healy was AG, she and now Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs Rebecca Tepper opposed modifying the wind farm contracts with Avon Grid. Uh, so I wonder right now, kind of taking up this torch, what do you see as your role uh, in protecting the ratepayer when companies accept public utilities contracts and then decide not to follow through on those terms? It is a significant role that we play as a statutory authority. That's crystal clear on our, our job is to make sure that residents are paying a reasonable rate when folks come, utilities come before um, various commissions uh, or the DPU or other, other uh, entities and to make sure those rates are reasonable and fair. And, but for the AG's office, a constituent, a lay person would have no representation. So I, I, I really appreciate the question because most folks don't know the, the job really of the AG's office. And this is a significant one. Um, and and the, the team, and it's a big team within energy and in the environmental bureau 
is really hard at work at protecting consumers in rates. Um, and, and of course, even including in the context of competitive electric suppliers. So where I am now is we continue to meet with the governor's office and various providers who have, uh, of course, gone ahead, won a contract, and now are coming back with concerns related to that contract. We're, we're following and, and listening what the conversation is coming out of the state house, including the legislature, because that will determine in many ways what the RFP should look like. We do take serious though, when you sign up to have a contract with the state, that you should not only acknowledge it, but also adhere to it just like anybody else. So it's, it's not an easy conversation we're having, um, but we wanna make sure, of course, these alternatives are available. So we're gonna do everything in our power to, to make that happen as we move to clean energy, to a clean energy economy. And we have to do it in partnership with the governor's office as well as the legislature and we'll continue to do that. And speaking of the public and their interest here, there's been a pretty, I don't know, scammy situation with regard to kind of competitive suppliers who try and pull residents away from their normal utility companies. Uh, why is that raised a red flag specifically for your office and how are you getting involved? Um, I'm assuming you're talking about the competitive supply report, yes. right? Um, uh, kudos again to EEB, Energy and Environment Bureau. They've just done tremendous work in this space and, and it's actually a report that updates previous um, reports. And it's something that everyone should pay attention to as a consumer. So if you look at, as we're trying to move and push really aggressively to clean energy and to make sure no families left behind or no set of individuals are bearing the brunt of that transition, particularly low income families, families of color, those who live in our rural communities or gateway communities, really important that we, they have the information they need to change the infrastructure of their homes and of course sign up for a certain type of, of services to transition to this eco new economy. The challenge with competitive electric suppliers is significant to say the least. What the, the report finds is over a period of six years from 2015 to 2021 that this industry costs individual residential customers $525 million. So there are currently over 430,000 residents here in the Commonwealth who are receiving their electricity from these competitive electric suppliers versus a traditional utility company. And they're actually losing $231 a year by getting their electricity from these companies. And that's the highest number we've seen since the office has been doing these studies. And so we just think enough is enough. The market should just go away. We're working, of course, with the legislature on some significant legislative solutions here to say you cannot prey upon gateway community, gateway city residents, or those who live in low-income communities or immigrant communities or people of color, because that's what they're doing with some very aggressive marketing tactics, sometimes harassing customers by showing up at your door or calling you repeatedly. So this is work that I'm extremely proud of and really proud of really proud of the ETD team that put it together and has been working on it for a long time. And let me tell you, you said scammy. I don't know if that is a word, uh, but if it is, this is scammy and this is not right. Um, and it's something that the office will continue to follow and continue to advocate for consumers uh, in relationship with all of that we're learning.
And speaking of kind of protecting consumers, I've spent a lot of time looking at the state's reliance on and encouragement of different types of gambling. Um, and as you know, online sports betting's legalization raised all kinds of red flags for your office. And now the attention is on an online lottery system in part to compete for the online gaming market. So uh, I just wanted to kind of take a second and say, like, do you have different concerns when it comes to online lotteries or is it of a piece? Because the online lottery is not yet law. The online gambling is. Exactly. And so I'm not weighing actively into the debate on the lottery, which clearly is still an active debate in the legis legislature based on the Senate budget. Um, and so what the office is focused on is there is much we can learn from the gaming and sports betting world. And there's still significant work to do there to protect consumers on, you know, with respect to, and I've been saying this frequently, what can be an addictive, uh, what can be addictive, the betting itself on addictive devices. So we want to make sure that we're not exposing young people and those who are not legally allowed to place bets on these platforms, um, that they're not being targeted and that operators are using everything in their power and on designing apps and platforms to prohibit that. We also want to make sure that operators aren't using people's personal information or their data and either selling it or using it to target folks and to get them to gamble more. Or the third party conversation, those who are making money off of this industry not opposed to that, but I am opposed to it when you're encouraging folks to play specific bets, knowing it's a losing bet, when the odds are not in their favor and someone is financially benefiting from that. So the list is long in terms of the concerns that we're working with the Gaming Commission and operators on every single day, and we will continue to do that. But let's figure that out and, and make sure there are no you know, unfair business practices or deceptive practices or unfair conduct happening. Uh, before we sort of rush into bringing, say, the lottery online. And I, there, our office wants to be helpful in this regard, and we'll remain in conversation with all stakeholders with the expertise that we can offer. And I think the thing that that sort of pings in my head here is you talked early on about sort of the AG's role as an advocate and a policy uh, advocate particularly. So why, why not wade into this topic um, kind of on the legislative front? Why focus more on the regulatory front? in terms of the online lottery. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is knowing our lane in our role. Um, our job is to you know, protect the consumer, also to protect operators and businesses. I was just talking to the business community. Anyone who is not a good business leader or not participating in good business practice, that's not a good thing for those who do the right thing. So we are actively protecting operators who are doing the right thing and want to do the right thing and consumers. And frankly, the consumer, which usually in, in certain contexts can't afford a lawyer, they need our protection. That's our lane in this conversation uh, because this is not a vote that we take. Uh, this is not something that obviously we play an active role in. The same with the, the sports betting. I was not actively engaged in whether or not it should happen or not. I want to be fair in this lottery conversation too, and to say, I'm not here to oppose. I'm just here to talk about the things that everyone should be concerned about because we see it in the gaming context. Let's make sure we have that right before proceeding uh, to whatever decision someone else decides to make 
and whether or not we should have the lottery go online. All right, the last thing we're gonna leave it on is an area of real passion for me, uh, which is zoning reform. Uh, the MBTA Communities Act, for those who aren't aware, is a state law that says cities and towns in Massachusetts near or hosting a subway or commuter rail line have to zone for a certain amount of multifamily housing near that transit site. Um, and a few towns have really been balking at those demands. Uh, what is the attorney general's interest in this? It's significant. I, I One, it's a statement that the AG's office has an incredible role to play in the context of housing and affordability, which we know is top of mind for every resident. And, and we demonstrated that, obviously, with our advisory on the MBTA Communities Law to say it's not optional. It is required. Those who have the MBTA as a public good within their community have to comply with this law that was passed but in a bipartisan effort, obviously, with former Governor Baker in the legislature. And our job is to implement the laws, not to have expressed necessarily our feelings on all of them, but to implement the laws. And we know with this particular legislation and why it was passed, it was to create housing and reasonable development and reasonable housing in communities that could support families and many others, frankly, who are in desperate need of housing and that this housing affordability crisis we see in the Commonwealth, everyone's going to have to play their part. And so when putting out this advisory, we wanted to make it clear the law was mandatory. We're here to offer expertise, technical assistance, which we've been doing with housing advocates and other organizations, as well as DHCD and other state agencies. We'll continue to do that. And to the extent a municipality just refuses after repeated attempts to do technical assistance, We'll look at other tools that we have in our toolkit to ensure compliance. But right now, the conversations have been productive. People really did need to know this information. Um, and so we're, we've been excited to engage with municipalities and we can, we'll continue to as we do other housing work as well, which is really significant to the office. Well, sadly, that is all the time we have for this week. Attorney General Andrea Campbell, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And to our listeners, we'll be back next week. Thank you for having me.